Welcome to Valley Church. I'm very, very happy to see all of you guys. Uh, if you're new or new-ish, back for the second time or so, I just want to say I'm really happy that you guys are here with us this evening. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and we're going to keep plugging away in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 18. Um, you can open your Bibles there if you'd like to. Before we dig in, I want to begin with just a, a warm-up, a nice, light, non-controversial topic. How many of you have heard of cancel culture? <laughs> if you haven't, you win points for staying off the grid and focusing on more important things in life. I'm not even on social media, but I know about this movement that has been developing over the last years. Um, if you don't know, the idea is that our culture right now is poised, primed, and ready to search for and learn about mistakes that people have made in the present or in the past. We're particularly interested in people in positions of power or fame who have done bad things, and those, those things have remained hidden back in the archives of their Twitter feed or in the history of their personal life. And when we discover, culture discovers that a person has done something that our culture finds particularly egregious, the outcome is that this person is canceled and removed from the various areas of their life where they have influence. They no longer deserve to be powerful or influential because maybe they're not actually a good person deserving of the fame or success that they've had. A lot of this, maybe most of it happens, takes place on the internet, at least it starts there, but it certainly has real consequences in people's lives. One recent example, I don't mean to stir up the pot, is uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Raise your hand if you watch the trial. This is a safe place if you were like watching that. Okay, I watched a little bit. Uh, Amber Heard made some claims about Johnny Depp. He was canceled, kicked off of a movie series that he was in, among a number of other things, received some fierce hatred from our, uh, our culture. And then it seemed like maybe the I don't know, the cancellation was like kind of reversed a little bit, like maybe uh, Amber Heard wasn't quite as truthful as we thought. I don't know. Uh, there are unfortunately dozens, dozens and dozens of examples of things like this. Now, there has been some good that has come out of what has been happening uh, with respect to this in our culture. If there is some kind of justice that happens for people that have been wronged, if there's someone in power or influence or fame who is looked up to as a good person, it can be a good thing for that person to not be seen that way if, in fact, they are not a good person. However, there's also a downside to what has been happening. I think that it has created a ruthlessness and desensitization in people, in us perhaps, where all we see when we look at someone is a collection of past mistakes, not what they actually are, which is the human being made in God's image and dearly loved by him. It's easy to do this with celebrities because we don't know them and they are not people to us, they're icons of a sort. But when we do this to people that we don't know, even just in our minds, we're actually training and rewiring our brains to be able to think this way about humans in general. So when this happens outside of the church with people in culture, with celebrities, or even on a smaller scale with just a normal, regular person and their friends, it makes sense to me that this would happen. Like, why would we expect any different from our culture when it is happening on a large scale with celebrities and famous people? Why would it also not happen on a small scale with just individual people and their friends and their communities and their schools and their places of work and things like that? So this is me, not me trying to wage war on cancel culture. I'm not trying to say it's bad or good. Uh, you are free and welcome to think what you wish about it. But I do want to speak to uh, the danger of if and when this mindset and attitude makes its way into the church. 
So if and when the church looks at its brothers and sisters as objects that are in some ways defective or sinful, we are lost, utterly lost, and we have missed the gospel. And so the five verses that we're gonna look at uh, tonight um, I think are a timely reminder about the attitude that the family of God needs to have towards one another as we learn to follow Jesus and make mistakes along the way and make mistakes in the context of a church community, a family. So in our context, these words that we're reading kind of function as a warning against the threat of maybe I could call it the spirit of cancel culture or something like it. The, a warning against that making its way into your and my relationships with people in this church. So let's open to Matthew 18, and we'll focus on verses 10 through 14, but I'm gonna read one through nine in case you missed the last few weeks and kind of get, our, get ourselves oriented on what's happening. So chapter 18, verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Welcome to a nice, light, happy church service. Uh, I'm gonna summarize quickly. Again, the last two weeks we've been digging into what those verses mean, but I'll summarize them quickly and simply. Um, the disciples have asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They likely want to know if and how important they are in this kingdom that they've been launching with Jesus. But Jesus had already, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter five, um, he had already turned the typical like world greatness and importance scale and structure up on its head. He flipped it upside down. He doesn't say that important and powerful and wealthy and perfect and put together people are great in the kingdom. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the persecuted, basically the opposite of who you think would be considered blessed and happy. And so the key to join Jesus' kingdom is fun fundamentally that you are broken and that you recognize that you are broken and then that causes you to be totally humble as you approach Jesus. Where we kind of bring empty but open hands to him and say, I'm, I'm yours. And so it's strange that the disciples in this moment are now asking who the greatest is, kind of trying to vie for some position. But rather than rebuke their question, he reminds them about how things work in the kingdom. And this time, rather than saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, the great ones in my kingdom are like children. Little ones, he says. 
inherently meek, inherently poor in spirit and unimportant, not great in terms of the societal structure of the world. So Jesus requires that all the people who would come be his disciples become like a child in the sense that they're not concerned with who is the greatest and where they fit into the structure and the scheme of things. They're humble, they're totally dependent on others, and Jesus wants his disciples, us, to be vulnerable and humble like a little child. The disciples had forgotten this, forgotten how the kingdom works, and so in, in asking that question, who's the greatest, they revealed that they stopped thinking with kingdom on their mind and started thinking in the way of the world again. They stopped thinking as vulnerable, humble disciples and started thinking in terms of the normal way of the world. And so Jesus warns his disciples, and in so doing, warning us, what might happen when a disciple stops being vulnerable, humble, and childlike and starts trying to be powerful, put together, have their status, and that sort of thing. And the risk, the warning is that you could become a stumbling block to someone who is becoming or might become a disciple or someone who is newly a disciple. So to put it simply, uh, if you meet Jesus in a church full of disciples who are trying to be important and powerful and appear put together, that's how you will learn to follow Jesus. That church's behavior would end up potentially becoming a stumbling block to a person meeting Jesus or a person who's new to Jesus, learning to follow him and that stumbling block can cause them to sin or be led astray in some way. So Jesus has painted this picture of how dangerous and dire it is when one disciple gets in the way of another disciple or causes them to stumble, and it's, it's bad. So he wants us to permanently and continuously remember our humble beginnings. No matter how long you've been following Jesus, no matter how holy you have become or all the great like spiritual rhythms that you have in place that we continue to remain humble and vulnerable and childlike so that we don't look down on someone else who is not in the same place on their journey with Jesus as you um, and that's what he says in verse 10 which is where we're going to start to dig in a little bit verse 10 see that you do not despise one of these little ones for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. I found it kind of interesting that Jesus had to give this instruction kind of so explicitly telling people not to despise little ones. Some translations say disdain or look down on. Remember, little ones does not mean children. It means um, people who are not great or important or have status in terms of the world. They're people who are regularly looked down on um, maybe due to their lower status. I think for Jesus, this was people like tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. The gospel talks about Jesus, how he welcomed and received them and spent time with them. Um, and it would have bothered people. It did. We read that. And so just a quick, really quick question for you to think about. Uh, who would that be for you? Um, people that you would consider in some way of, of a lower status, people that you would be tempted to look down on, maybe someone who if you spent time with them, invited them to church, you might worry about how others would perceive you. Just stew on that for a little bit while we keep going. Jesus tells his disciples don't despise or don't look down on these little ones and then he gives the reason and it is this, because their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. I don't know if you have heard this verse before, read this verse before. It's pretty strange. Um, 
Some people, I think, traditionally think this could be evidence for the concept of what our culture calls guardian angels. It talks about the little ones and their angels, seemingly implying that each little one has their own angel that is in the presence of the Father, um, kind of bringing their needs before God. Um, there's a few options for understanding this. One is that option that every one of these little ones, but little ones in this case means all humble disciples. So every disciple has a guardian angel that is kind of mediating our needs before God. That's one option. The second option is that the little ones as a category have some number of angels that are kind of uh, interceding on their behalf to the Lord. So it's not every single follower of Jesus, but there are angels that are looking out for vulnerable um, disciples. The third one, kind of interesting I read about, uh, a good number of scholars think that angels, for some reason in this case, refers to deceased spirits, not like angelic messengers, but it's referring to um, the little ones are these deceased, um, humble disciples who are now face-to-face with the Father. Um, I happen to think that second option makes the most sense, that there are angels that do look out for Jesus' disciples, but probably not on a one-to-one ratio. Um, we only have a few examples uh, in scripture of angels watching over specific people like for a time or uh, watching over specific nations or regions or in Revelation, specific churches, but we don't have any other evidence that each disciple, each believer has their own angel. No matter what option you like, I think we can be um, pretty sure of what the point of verse 10 is. The idea is that our Father in heaven is ever and always aware with or without the help of angels, of the state and the needs of his disciples, especially those that are vulnerable, humble, or the little ones that he calls them. Moving on to verse 11, which if you look down in your Bible is not there. We've talked about this before. We, uh, in chapter 17, verse 21, this is one of those verses that is omitted. Um, I'll explain it very shortly. Um, And then if you have questions, you can go back to the teaching that we did where we kind of explained it a little more in depth. Um, But the omitted text here is the son of man came to save the lost. That's verse 11, comes from Luke 19. This thing that happens, the omission of some verses has to do with something called text criticism. Basically, Jesus really did at some point say the son of man came to save the lost. Luke recorded it in the 19th chapter of his gospel. Scholars, however, do not think that Matthew recorded those words of Jesus here in verse 18, 11. They think somewhere along the way, someone thought that those words, the Son of Man came to save the lost, helped make sense of this passage that we're reading, or maybe they were inserted accidentally. Again, we did a whole teaching on the absence of verses in our Bible um, earlier, a few weeks ago, maybe. um, Matthew 17, 21. Um, There's another omitted verse. If you want to dig in to that topic, you're welcome to go listen to that one, or Come ask me another time. On to verses 12 through 14. These next three verses are famous and important. Um, Most of us know them probably from the context of Luke, chapter 15, I think, where they kind of lead into the story of the prodigal son, which we love. Um, But this context in Matthew, I think, is just maybe nuanced a little bit. Um, These verses are a further explanation on why we don't look down on or despise what these little ones are. So let's read 12 and 13. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? 
And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. I mean, there's a reason that this passage uh, is so famous and powerful and beautiful. The image of a shepherd leaving the 99 of his flock to go find the one sheep that has wandered away is beautiful. The theologian Stanley Howarth says, uh, the people called by Jesus cannot help uh, but refuse any logic that would suggest some should be sacrificed for the good of the greatest number. God is not a utilitarian in that sense. There is a lot to glean from this, those verses right there. It's beautiful and many a song has been written about it. But what I think is unique about Matthew's version of this story is the context that it sits in, where this whole chapter is about restoring people who have stumbled, wandered away, or sinned. And I think in Matthew's mind, that's what this wandering sheep story is about. It demonstrates the shepherd's love for restoration. It says he is happier about bringing back the one than he would be about the 99 that never wandered off. So this one that has wandered away is now considered a little one, a vulnerable, humble disciple like we learned about before, but now has been led away or by their own desire and choice has wandered away from their shepherd. Finally, verse 14. In the same way, the same way as that shepherd will leave the 99 to go get the one, in the same way your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. The verse is worded kind of strangely to me in the NIV in that phrase that he is not willing that any would perish. Um, the idea isn't that God is unwilling like in that he's stubborn or something. Uh, it's more kind of a traditional old school sense that he does not wish, he does not will, he does not want any of these little ones to wander off forever, so much so that he goes after one of them. He cares so much about one of those who has wandered off that he fixates on restoring them and bringing them back into the fold. So that's our passage. Let's, a quick, maybe silly kind of progression of how, how it works, verses one through 14. The disciples are like, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus says, the little ones. Be like them, they get it. And then also, don't make the little ones stumble. Also, when the little ones do stumble, my heart breaks for them and I go after just one of them because I love them so much. So that's what we've got so far in Matthew 18. And so I wanna pause now and just talk about what we should be getting from this, what we should be doing as a church family in light of what we're reading so far. Um, the picture that Jesus has put on our mind, the thing that we should be thinking about right now um, is a little one. It's kind of a funny and curious little expression that Jesus has used that we get to think about now, but it is a little one. And, and that word, that phrase has kind of been flexible in what it means to Jesus throughout this passage so far. It refers to a humble disciple. It refers to a characteristic that Jesus wants all of us to have, to become, to lower ourselves, to become a little one, a humble disciple one who isn't important or isn't trying to be important according to the world's or culture standards, one who is maybe vulnerable, it kind of becomes to mean this one who is vulnerable because they're new to Jesus, they're humble and maybe easily influenced by other uh, disciples. And now it also refers to one who has wandered away from Jesus's flock, a little one. 
So that's who Jesus has put on our mind, a childlike, humble, vulnerable disciple who Jesus deeply cares about and has wandered off. And so there's two things that um, I think we would do well to think about now and then maybe later on this week. First is that Jesus wants his heart to be yours. And that is true because of the second thing, which is that you were slash are a little one. Jesus wants his heart to be yours. When it comes to a person who is um, making mistakes, we talked about this, our culture is training us, whether we are aware of it or not, to do one of two things, to be passive and just like don't care, it's their life, their problem, who am I to judge, that sort of thing, or to be ruthless and desensitized and just like cancel them in our mind to move on. They've messed up, they've made their mistakes, and that means that we get to be done with them. I get to be done with them. And this is just the polar opposite of what God's family should be like. We must adopt the heart of God, what he feels for his children. We need to internalize and feel for our brothers and sisters. And when they mess up and they wander, what God feels is the strong desire to see them restore, to see them come back. And so we are supposed to put on the caring heart of our shepherd. It's not just for pastors or leaders. It has to be a whole church community, a whole church family doing this for one another. Uh, James chapter 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a, over a multitude of sins. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. That is James and Paul's way of saying something very similar to what Jesus has said, that it is the responsibility of the church family to have the heart of the father, the heart of the shepherd, and help him bring people back into the fold. A Bible scholar, Michael Wilkins, says, um, God has commissioned the community of disciples to do everything possible to retrieve their straying brothers and sisters, for they must have the same heart as does their heavenly father. Um, have you ever been in the room or involved in a situation or watched a person be restored to Jesus and, and maybe also in doing that to their church family or their church community? I'm not talking about a person who accepts Jesus for the first time. That is wonderful and amazing. I'm talking about someone who was a little one who at, at some point said, I, I need Jesus and humbled themselves, lowered themselves to accept the lordship of Jesus, but then became a little one in a different way and wandered. Wandered away, got lost in their sin, and then Jesus brought them back. Have you ever watched or seen that happen? It is a beautiful and powerful thing to see repentance and redemption and restoration happen in front of you. Um, and I just want to say that God, I know, 
there is a time where God will want to use you to be that for someone in your church family, whether it's here at Valley or in 20 years from now, if you're somewhere else, God might want to use you to have the heart of the shepherd to help restore someone and bring them back to Jesus. It's easy if the person wrongs you, which we're gonna get to that later in Matthew 18, or just if they've done something that bothers you and you feel like, I don't want to, it's not my job, who am I to do that? Um, I think Jesus is saying, if they're part of your church family, your circle where we're following Jesus together, it is your responsibility to have the heart of the shepherd, to do so gently like Galatians 6 says, but to be the hands and feet of Jesus in that person's life, to do what you can to help them be restored to relationship with Jesus. You were and are a little one. So if you ever in your life, and I think everyone in here has at some point, have ever told Jesus, I am broken and sinful, I have nothing to offer you, I need, I need you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sin, cleanse me and make me new from the inside out, I want to follow you as my king. If you've ever said something like that, that was you becoming a little one. You laid down your pride and your self-importance and whatever status you felt you had and you said, I've got nothing. It's a humbling process to come under the lordship of Jesus. That's a little one. That's who Jesus found you as and that's who Jesus wants us to be actually. And also, if you've ever wandered away, gotten lost for a season, that was you being a little one. I know I know that I have, when I was 18, 19 years old, I think, I wandered away and got lost, super lost and stuck in sin. And I was, in that season, a little one, a weak and vulnerable young man who needed to be rescued by my shepherd. And he sent my mom and my dad to pray for me and help me, um, guide me and my friend David to come alongside me in that season. And I'll bet good money that each and every one of you has a season in your mind right now where you were a wandering little one, led astray maybe, maybe wandered off on your own, got lost in sin. Maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe it feels fresh. Maybe it feels traumatic still, depending on what happened to you. Maybe, maybe you were rescued and restored by the shepherd Jesus. You were and are a little one. I know that feels kind of diminutive, maybe childish, but that's the point, that we feel humble, that we lay down our self-importance, that we are a little one. Maybe we got really lucky and as I'm saying these words right now today, have caught you, not like caught you, but like caught you in a time where you are currently a wandering little one. You feel like you've wandered away from Jesus in some way. And I will tell you from personal experience, it's very, very possible, easy in fact, to wander and also sit at church and be here every Sunday. So I just wanna ask a question and let you sit with it for a little bit. If God would rejoice at your return, that's what we read happens, the shepherd is happier about the restoration and the return of the one. The picture we can think of is the father who uh, embraces his son and runs to meet him in, in the prodigal son. 
If God would rejoice at your return, how do you suppose he feels about you in your wandering away? If his response when you come back is rejoicing and happiness, how do you suppose he feels towards you in your wandering? I don't know about you, but I sometimes wrongly think that God is angry, vindictive, and disappointed with me when I wander. But what I see here is a shepherd who is brokenhearted and aching to see you return to him and restored to relationship with him, which does involve repentance, yes, but he's aching for us to come back. And this is not just like big, long, heavy seasons of wandering, but this is like maybe a daily or a weekly wandering where we just drift in our souls and we numb out and we wander away from being with our Savior. He's not willing, does not want, does not wish for any of these little ones to perish or wander off forever. He is thinking about you. If you are wandering right now, a wandering little one, he's thinking about you. I dare say that he has left the 99 and is en route to come and get you right now if you would let him. Um, our world, our culture, our community specifically needs a church, not just Valley Church, but a church in Salem full of people who know they are little ones. That is like how you identify as a human being is I'm one of Jesus's little ones. I know that sounds silly. Humble disciples, vulnerable, who have the heart of the shepherd, Jesus, the heart to see people returned and restored to relationship with him. I'm hoping that we can um, put that on together as a church family. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would use these words of Jesus and this story to um, help us get into and stay into that zone of thinking as one of your little ones. People who are not concerned with our status in the world, in culture, our status in this church or in our community or our school, not trying to be important, not using the church as a mean or means or gain of gain, of gaining self-importance, would you help us to be humble and vulnerable, knowing that we met you as a little one and are still that way. Your weak and vulnerable and unimportant disciples who you dearly love Jesus, I pray for the person in this room who feels like they're wandering now. Um, in some way, would you just hold their face so that they can be in your presence and see and experience and feel your love for them, your deep love for them, that you are beckoning and calling them back to you your arms are not crossed, waiting for a certain formula of good behavior and the right words. You're just ready now to receive your little ones. I pray that as we worship you, as we sing truth, that this would just sink deep into us as a church family, 
that would color the way we see ourselves and we see each other and those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.